0: There's three sets of work that have to happen. There's work that white people do with other white people. Because my thing is, like speaks to like. You know, advocates speak to other advocates because we know the work. Teachers speak to teachers. Lawyers speak to lawyers. Doctors speak to doctors. White people speak to white people. Because there's times, like, white people are afraid of saying the wrong things to black people. Right? I've had people who love me dearly and have not said a thing because they're scared because they don't want me to think the wrong thing about them because they say the wrong thing, right? And I get that, that's real. So white people talk to other white people because then you can get naked in that room because all of you have some similar types of experiences and you can do a set of work. Then you have black people who do work with other black people. Now, it's not the same work, but it's their own work. Everybody has their own work then once we've done this, the third leg of the stool, which makes the stool stand and should be strong, is then we come together. But everybody wants to do that third leg first. And if we have not done our own work, it's just a setup from the getup for foolishness or what I like to call fully wang and shenanigans.
1: Hey, how are you? Welcome to the Optimistic Advocate show that brings you tips, insights, and straight talk, reaction to breaking news in the world of mental health. I'm your host, Scott Bryant Comstock. I'm the CEO and founder of the Children's Mental Health Network, and this is episode six. Can you believe that? Episode six, six episodes already. Oh man, we are in a serious, serious groove. Today, we have a great show our guest is Melanie Funches out of Rochester, New York. Now, Melanie, or Mama Mel as they call her in Rochester, is an advocate's advocate. She directs community engagement for the Mental Health Association in Rochester, which basically means that she's responsible for making connections with diverse communities and forming them, bringing them together, connecting them with the Mental Health Association with the ultimate goal of strengthening the fabric of Services and supports that are provided to the good people of Rochester. Now that's pretty impressive in and of itself. But her history as an advocate goes all the way back to childhood. And today we're gonna we're, we're gonna learn about that history. We're gonna take a deep dive into who Melanie Funches is, how she got into this work, what motivates her, and the specific Things she does to bring communities together. Uh, We're going to spend a lot of time talking about the Black Lives Matter movement and the importance of addressing racial injustice and how Melanie is a part of what's working in Rochester, New York. Like I said, she's quite something and she's a joy. I think you're going to enjoy this interview with Melanie. During the course of this podcast, you may hear a horn, you may hear a car, You may hear kids playing out in the street, and that's all right. Don't you worry. That's just because Melanie did this interview with front door open, enjoying a beautiful Rochester summer. Sounds of community all around. What more could you ask for an advocate to do? So enjoy the kids, enjoy the horns, maybe even a dog or two. Let's get into the interview. I started off the interview with Melanie talking about the early days of the Federation of Families for Children's Mental Health, which is where I first met Melanie. She was an advocate out of New York, and I hosted the national conference that we'd have every year. And the executive director, Barbara Huff, a white woman, and then you got me, a white guy, typically up on stage at this national conference that Really, the constituency developed into primarily an African American audience in those early days. So, I I talked to Melody about just that strange dynamic that probably, not probably, still exists today, where more often than not, you have white faces in positions of leadership. And in this case, African American families in the audience. And I talked to Melanie about the challenge of being a black advocate back in the nineties and what that looked like, what that felt like, how polite you had to be. You know, there was a lot of unwritten code about how one carries oneself. And it was fascinating to hear her reactions uh, to that question. So the interview picks up with us talking about the Federation in the early days. In the early days of the Federation, how Ironic is this you have Barbara Huff, white woman. I love Barbara. You had me running the conferences. Our primary audience <laughs> that we were speaking to, if you will, or, or really who became the nucleus of what the Federation was, was African American families. That was the primary audience. So you got these two white faces up there, you know, <laughs> leading this. Effort. And it's not a touchy conversation for Barbara because Barbara was adamant on we got to figure out something different. But it was a touchy conversation with board members. Afraid of, is this organization becoming too black in those days? And this would have been the early 90s, I guess. There was this unwritten code that if you're black and you're an advocate, you got to be a polite one. Uh, otherwise, you're not going to get invited. To this table, and in mm-hmm. this case, it was with federal government. And I, people are going to hate me for saying that, but I just think it's true. You know, it's
0: absolutely it was- true. There, it is absolutely true. But that is that's being black in America, right? If I'm not smart, articulate, and clean like Obama, I know that that limits my opportunity, right? And so back then, when I was young and fiery, you know, I understood I understood deeply that there was a goal to get to. So I made sure that I was always dressed to the nines. I was always very articulate, right? I was always smiling. I was always very engaging and, and what's the word? Charismatic and use beautiful language, right? And this was very, and and it was like, I understood what the game was. Mm -hmm. The game was to stay at the table. And to figure out where the sweet spot is, I'm pushing. And I always would say, okay, in for a penny, in for a pound and figure out how much capital I could build. And then once I built the capital, I would lay on it, build some more capital, lay on it, build some more capital, lay on it.
1: What what does that capital look like? What do you mean build capital?
0: Build capital is where you build relationships, right? Like I talked about, I talked about like Susan Stromberg, who was a, a federal project officer. Yeah. Uh, she became an ally, right, in a true sense of the word, because what she did was we she heard my voice and she used her positional power to open doors for me. Mm. And she didn't just open the door. She opened the door and paired me with other people who were more seasoned than me, other black women, to tell me this is the runnings of this room. This is what you need to know as a black woman walking into this room. And it empowered me with knowledge and information. I need you to read this, this, and this before you go in. So you know both sides of the coin. So I would walk into the rooms highly prepared. Right? And I would walk in the rooms highly prepared. And then I would meet new people. And those people would say, oh, you, you can do this. That's how I met Ken Mar, And I met Ken Martinez. And he said, Melanie, I want you to write a brief about family-driven. Right? And... It was, it got embargoed, but that's a whole nother story. But um, it was like, how do we do this? You know, and then, you know, he, and each time you build these relationships where, and the thing was, was that a lot of people in that, during that time when I was, when I was coming up, were like, Melanie, we think you may be the one to break through. Once I got in and I was really looking, I talked about the different phases of the fa- of family leaders and the family movement, mm-hmm. phase one was like the cast people, and they were uh, spitting. Vi- they were like, "What is it? Spitting vinegar."
1: Mm-hmm.
0: They were rawr, It was like three hundred, right? It right, was like right, right, they were right. fighters. The second wave were like my 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 boss when I first came in, Debbie Bartlett. and uh, Some of them were so were so happy to be at the table. They sold the store.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I was third wave. I was what I considered third wave, the beginning of the third wave of folks who understood that you couldn't be 300, didn't come with your knives out all the time, mm-hmm. but you don't sell the store. Right. And how do you find that sweet spot? Now, the thing that we didn't get in third wave that some of us that some of us got and some of us didn't that we didn't necessarily learn was. How to distinguish between keeping your agency alive and what is for the agency as the individual versus what's for the movement.
1: Can you go back and forth? Can you be situational or do you have to be all one or all the other? Because I, I watch the family movement sell its soul, you know, to federal government. Yes. Yeah. But here you are, people are telling you you're the one, you know, you're, boy, that's, that's a lot of. That's a lot of That's,
0: pressure, <laughs> you know. But what happened was, was that for people like me, I believe you have to decide. You have to draw a line in the sand and say, "What are you going to do?"
1: Yeah.
0: You know, I'm a preacher's kid. I don't know if you know this, but I'm a preacher's kid, and um, in there's a in a Bible book, the book of Esther. And in the book of Esther, um, Esther is taken in to go before the king. But she's really a Jew, right? And But she's beautiful and what have you. And Haman wants to kill all the Jews. And her uncle, she's raised by her uncle Mordecai. And Mordecai says, you've got to go before the king and save us, right? And so Esther says, if I perish, I perish. I'm going to go. But if I perish, I perish, right? And it's really funny because many people who talk about me and write about me, Talk about me and relate me to Esther because my thing is, is this: I will go forth, but and if I perish, I perish. What we have done as the family movement is, we have gotten away from "if I perish, if I perish," because we've gotten to no money, no mission. That's a life in a pit. When there was when there was no federal money, we still had a movement.
1: That's right.
0: We had families. When there was no big uh, SAMHSA grants, we had a movement. Yeah, but see, that, but see, part of that comes from being Black. Inherently to me, I believe that part of that comes from me being Black, me being in a place where I've always had to operate from the place of not having. And knowing I'm not going to get it from, no one's going to come in and hand me $9 million,
1: right.
0: $20 million, $50 million. They're just not going to do it. So... I need to understand that I have to operate from this other space and me having that mindset from the outset, I can go on and say, if I perish, I perish because I know the inherent thing of most value is not the thing. It's not the brick and mortar place. It's not the, you know, it's not the, the grant it's the relationships because the fact of the matter is, whether I work for my employer today or tomorrow, I'm going to be an advocate the rest of my life.
1: Right.
0: The knowledge that I have as an advocate to help parents navigate the system that I was able to navigate for my children when they were children, I still have that. No one can take that from me. My voice, no one can take it from me. And what I think is, as a movement, family movement forgot mm-hmm. in, in the effort of people to get paid. And the thing is, but what I've learned is when you step into that space and you stand boldly with your chest out and your head up, they respect you and you can have both. But you've got to, you've got to go in like,
1: like Esther going to the King. How did you do it? I mean, was there a moment when you just said, that's it, this is what I got to be. I'm fascinated by that. And, and, and I think our listeners would be fascinated who are trying to figure out, you know, how they can be the, they, they all can't be you. But if there are some tells, some, some things that they can, you know, that you would say, here's what to look for, or here's what, I, here's what happened to me. I mean, okay. when was that moment when you just said, you know what, it's clear what I got to do. And there's cost and there's penalties, but if I'm going to be true, this is the path I got to take.
0: Well, for me, there's some, there's some real concrete things, like one, one monkey don't stop, no show. Even if I'm that monkey. Which means that it's not about you.
1: Oh, that's so hard, Melanie. Oh, man, you're getting all this praise for being the one. <laughs> but but the thing is, it's a lie. Yeah. Because people are fickle. Yeah.
0: People are fickle. You know, people will love you today and hate you tomorrow. But the one thing is true. There will be children Every single day who need us, there will be families every single day. That is true. But people's tastes come and go with the wind. So it's not about you. Two, always, 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 always go together. There's an African proverb that says, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. Because the fact of the matter is the one thing I love about these, about the young people and Black Lives Matter is that they, they classify themselves as a leader full movement. Which means their leadership is diffuse. And they learn that after watching what happened to Medgar and Malcolm and Martin and Huey and Fred and, you know, watching these people get murdered. Because if there's the leader, you can kill the leader. Right? But if you have a diffuse leadership, it could pop up anywhere. And you never see it coming, and you can't stop that. Right? So, one, realize one monkey can't stop, no show, and it's not about you. Never has been, never will be. Two, always have others with you. And as you learn, you'd immediately learn master turnkey. Because something else that happened in our movement, is that we were not good at telling the whole story, generation to generation, wave to wave. So the reason I was blessed is that people like Barbara Huff were still around. People like from Texas, Patty.
1: Patty, Patty Durr. Patty
0: Durr. There's so many of these people who were around and took time with me. Kim Williams took time with me. Oh, gosh, so many names. I don't want to say, leave people out, but just like they took on, on the family side, Regina Hicks and Barbara Bazron and, and Miss Miss Vivian, Vivian Jackson on the government side. All these people took time and poured into me and told me the story. But once I was told the story, I was obligated to tell it because part of the culture, part, and that's also part of the African culture, is... The oral tradition. So once I knew the story, I had to tell the story. So all the people that came behind me, all my advocates that work for me, they know the story. I'm like, understand, this is where this comes from. You are standing on the backs of people like Barbara Huff, you are standing on the backs of people who have laid their life out, you know, for this work. People who lost their their own children in the midst of trying to do this work. Never forget it, right? And when you you know in that context, you realize it's not about you. It's about holding the line. But because we were not good at telling that story, we became a business. We became the business of working families, right? And we became part of the not-for-profit industrial complex. And I'm not going to do that. I just, I can't buy into that concept.
1: That's really strong. And I know you know this, but when when I started the network, the Children's Mental Health Network, I said no federal money. And Melanie, I, I don't remember if you were in the room at that hotel when we started it, but people were furious with me. They said, Scott, you can get a couple million dollars easy. Because, you know, I was in that kind of position. And I said, well, that's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> then it's not about what it needs to be about, because then you you're beholden to that who pays your bills. That's right. That's right. So g- getting that clarity for yourself, how did it make you different? That's kind of a weird question, but you know, just in terms of how you carry yourself, how you interact with people, what what gets you angry, what doesn't get you angry anymore. I mean, what's what's different when you make that.
0: I don't know if it made me different or if it made the way people perceive me be different because I was always the same, right? But people, because I decided, I made a very willful decision that, you know, if I perish, I perish. Yeah. Because this is bigger than me. It's not about me. I've got other people that I'm building up and I'm sowing into. So if I get taken out, the movement will keep moving. Right, I can always go home. <laughs> it's like, hey, and you know, I went back to being an activist is where i where I've cut my teeth since i was a since I was
1: a teenager. What were you doing as a teenager?
0: oh gosh i was I was actually a parent advocate before I ever had children, huh you know I was a systems kid. I was a systems kid and I, and I became an advocate, you know, I'm what I call a three generation peer.
1: Before you go there, uh, just for our listeners, what do you mean by a systems kid?
0: A systems kid. I'm a kid who was, I was a ward of the state and I was a child who was in systems. So I was in uh, group homes. I was in, I was in the not juvenile justice, but I was in the child welfare system in the child welfare system in congregate care. Got it. For a number of years of my when I was young. Mm-hmm. And I and I've been an activist. I mean, but I since my earliest memories, I mean, before the family issues came and before I was in the system, one of the earliest stories I talk about was me in fourth grade when my teacher called me the N-word in front of my entire class. Because I was better at doing math than she was, right? My father had what, they didn't have a name for it when he was a kid, but what we know now is that he had Asperger's or high-functioning, what they now call high-functioning autism. Sure. And he had a PhD in mathematics from Syracuse. But he also had a heroin addiction. So there was this thing going on, right? My mother was brilliant, but she also has schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. These are two people who shouldn't have been like procreating, but I'm thankful, you know, I'm happy to be here. But the thing, you know, but the thing is, is this, what happened was the teacher didn't understand that I was this really wicked smart kid. And because I used a different method that my college professor father taught me how to use, she decided to default to calling me the Edward and I stayed to sit in. And would not go to school until I got an apology. They threatened my mother. They threatened my mother with CPS. All kinds of people. Like in New York City, where I'm from, the city is broken up into these smaller districts. And each district has like a mini superintendent, right? And has all these, like, so within, like, the boroughs, the city's broken up into the boroughs. Within the boroughs, they're broken up into these sections, right? And so these people were coming to our house. And I remember I was in fourth grade. So how old are you in fourth grade? Uh, ten,
1: 10, nine. Or something like that. Right? Yeah, nine or and ten. so
0: I was, and I was a young, I was always a younger in school because I graduated when I had just turned 16. And so I never forget, even in the midst of my mother's mental health and her challenges, she said something that I carried as as a parent. She said, they said, well, you know, we're going, you're going to go to jail. From educational neglect, we're going to take her away. She says, if I don't stand with her now, everything I've taught her to this point is moot. Because she's standing on what I taught her. So I've got to stand with her as she stands on what I taught her. And it, and I think about being the child of a parent with mental illness. That's a thing. hmm that that my mother had that level of clarity, right? But what it did is it, it that moment shifted my trajectory for life. To say that I can advocate, wow! Because I stayed out of school almost a hundred days.
1: Did you really?
0: I and I literally took a cardboard box and wrote "sit in" on the cardboard box, put it in the middle of my living room floor, and I sat on it. I got up, got dressed for school every morning, took my books, and I sat in that spot every morning and I read all day long. I did math problems all day long. I read the Daily News. I read the New York Times every single day.
1: So I learned all day long. Wow. What'd your friends think? I mean, that is so badass, but I just, it's like...
0: I don't know because I wasn't allowed to go outside.
1: Oh, you weren't even allowed to go. Okay. Yeah.
0: Because, wow. okay. Because the rule in my house was if you were too, if you weren't well enough to go to school, you weren't well enough to go out and play. Got so it. the fact of the matter was for those 100, whatever, close to 100 days, I think it was like 98 days, whatever it was, I, I never went outside to
1: play. So how did it resolve itself?
0: There was some guy, I was a kid, so I didn't really understand all the positions, but some big guy from the central office came and he came to my house and I said, did anybody ever ask my classmates what happened? Huh. Because the, my teacher kept denying that it happened. And by this time, a couple months a couple months gone by, you know, yeah. And I said, ask my classmates, because back then they moved us as a cohort. So these same kids, we've been in cl- class yet, since kindergarten. Yeah. And so I don't know all of what happened, but. By piecing it together, they came and they pulled all the kids in the class out, like right, away from the teacher. Right. And my friends told the whoever the, the adults were that they recounted what I said word for word that I was telling the truth and that she was mad because I was smarter than her. That's what the kids said, right? And so once it was realized that, and I don't know why it took them so long to ask the kids because it was the 70s, but well, anyway- It took them so long to ask the kids, right? And so they asked the kids and then they came back and they made a deal with my mom. They said, I wanted the teacher fired. That's what I wanted. Yeah. But I didn't understand about unions back then.
1: (laughs) I didn't understand it was that. Come on, Melody. You're fourth grade. You should know this, right?
0: (laughs) No, I didn't know about unions. I figured you do a bad thing, you get fired, right? That's what I knew. And so she went away, she left the building and I came back to school. That she, at the end of that school, because it was almost the end of the school year. So they said she will be gone at the end of the school year. So that was my agreement. I came back and I had to go back to her classroom. Wow. She, I'll never forget. She said to me, well, you think you won, but guess what? You're going to be retained, which means you're going to be left back. To which I said to her, I said, oh, you do not understand. You can't leave me back. I have a 12.9 reading and math level. There's no way you can retain me. (laughs) Oh, oh, adults hated me. You are a beast. I was a a terrible child because, no, because my parents, because of their own mental stuff, they always related to me as an adult.
1: Okay. Yeah.
0: So I didn't know, like, I would go out and play with my friends, whatever, but. When I talk to adults, I talk to them as if I was another adult. Right. right. And so, and and within my family, because I was so smart, right, they thought it was cute. Because I wasn't disrespectful. I was just, I spoke to them as equals. Not I read the yeah. same they read. Yeah. So she was angry as hell. But the problem with that was I had this reputation now as being this uppity black kid. Yeah. And I ended up leaving the school the next year because it was like, it followed me. They were like, well, what are you going to do now? I just like, right. And the thing is, y'all don't think it's a problem that you could call a little hit an (laughs) N-word? It's like,
1: yeah, so
0: I mean, that's what set the trajectory for my life. And I've been doing this ever since.
1: Let's talk about Black Lives Matter. With all that's gone on, not only the horrific killing of George Floyd, but then we have this little thing called a pandemic, and we have the the racial inequalities and who's being impacted, and the fact that as a country we don't really want to look too closely at all. So we get all this stuff going on. So talk to me about what you're doing in Rochester and uh, what that looks like.
0: I've become really laser focused in talking about healing. Because what I've realized is having been part of these movements is that the last time like around Eric Garner and, you know, and Mike Brown, that, that uprising, right? Our young people were dying. And by their own hands, suicide among activists was ridiculous. People don't even talk about it. But the suicide among activists was really high. And because what I learned from that time was because we didn't put self-care on the front end. We didn't teach self-care on the front end. We didn't teach healing on the front end. So what I've chosen to use my time for, because I am I told them, I told the babies, at home I'm known as Mama Mel. That's my, that's my street name here at home. Mama Mel doesn't march anymore. Mama Mel got bad knees. So Mama Mel doesn't march anymore. But Mama Mel creates healing circles. So I'm, I've been creating all these different healing circles that are operating around the community. There's uh, what we call emotional emancipation circles. They're not my model. The Community Healing Network and the Association for Black Psychologists created these circles called emotional emancipation circles. I heard about them several years ago, and I had a hard time getting funding. But a year ago this time, I was able to secure funding and got a team of people trained. And the people came, we did a training, and then you have to do the set of circles yourselves. So the whole facilitator team went through the circle process. And so it took us a couple months to go through it ourselves. And just as we were getting ready to launch, COVID hit. So everything got shut down. So I have this set of trained people in this great model for this. And so we were like, okay, let's see what's gonna happen. And, you know, we'll say, we're gonna, we'll wait till after COVID because it's designed as an in person model. Right. And so we're like, okay, we'll wait, we'll wait. And then George Floyd happened. So we said, okay, we've got to do something. And we said, okay, we're going virtual. Literally, I got a couple more of the trained folks. I said, kids, guess what? We're about to have some healing circles. And we meet every other Thursday night. It's it's strictly for people of African descent, and they come in two hours, and we process this stuff. And then after, when we that first weekend of real uprising, we had violence here, like there was all over the country. There were things burning, or what have you. And I remember that next morning, that Sunday morning, I was on a call um, with the mayor and some other folks. There was a whole bunch of us on the call. And because I'm a member of a group here called the Black Agenda Group, and we are a group of citizens who've come together around an agenda for the black community. So that's why I'm on this call. And they're talking about how to clean up, right, how to take care of the businesses, clean up. And we get to the end of the call and I'm like, well, what about the children? We have a city full of traumatized children who've watched their city burn and we have children who are out there protesting got hit with rubber bullets because I was there. Mm-hmm. I was there the day before on the line. And because I'm mama, the the original set of activists who are now the leaders, they, we have a rule. Mama Mel goes home. They send me home because they said they, they don't want me to be in a place where something happens to me and then they're going to fight. So we're like, okay, I go home. So I'm watching what's happening to my children. They're being tear gassed. They're being hit with rubber bullets. While they're standing and singing. So I said, something has to be done. So I put out a call. All the youth people, we all come together. Literally, 8 o'clock is this meeting. 10 o'clock, we're putting out the call. Noon, we're saying, we got to do a healing circle. 4 o'clock that afternoon, there was a healing circle with 20 kids in it and four adults. And that circle has been meeting on Sundays. And so what I'm doing now is... I'm working on bringing all kinds of healing things, teachings and all these things to help the community learn, understand, grow and heal. So that's that's the work I'm doing now. I don't have enough capacity. That's my challenge now. So the the need has gotten so it like giant mushroom cloud. So I have all this need but not enough capacity. So I'm here trying to figure out all right, if I put people here, because I can't burn out my people. So I said, if I put people here, put people here, if I do this, I do this. So that's what I'm doing now, trying to meet the need for our folks, both of healing, but this deep need of education to understand what is happening and understand why it's happening, understand this place in history and help our people understand who they are and why Why is this happening. And so that's that's what I'm doing in
1: Rochester right now. Can you talk about what white people need to be doing?
0: My thing is, is this, okay? And this is what we've talked about previously is I see this as a three-legged stool. There's three sets of work that have to happen. There's work that white people do with other white people. Because my thing is, like speaks to like. You know, advocates speak to other advocates because we know the work. Teachers speak to teachers. Lawyers speak to lawyers. Doctors speak to doctors. White people speak to white people. Because there's times like white people are afraid of saying the wrong things to black people, right? I've had people who love me dearly and have not said a thing because they're scared because they don't want me to think the wrong thing about them because they say the wrong thing, right? And I get that. That's real. So white people talk to other white people because then you can get naked in that room because all of you have some similar types of experiences and you can do a set of work. Then you have Black people who do work with other Black people. Now, it's not the same work, but it's their own work. Everybody has their own work. Then once we've done this, the third leg of the stool, which makes the stool stand and sh- be strong, is then we come together. But everybody wants to do that third leg first. Yes. <laughs> and if we have not done our own work, it's just a setup from the get-up for foolishness, or what I like to call fully wanging shenanigans, right? And it's like, cause no, because boolewagging shenanigans happens when we don't, when we don't do these things in the proper order. And so when people ask me, what can white people do, I usually say, get your cousins. Right? And put it in real plain terms, get your cousins.
1: Uh-huh.
0: Have some uncomfortable meals. You know, the Fourth of July is coming. And over that barbecue, have some real conversation, right? And there are groups, there are affinity groups. There are some, I, one of my best friends, who happens to be a very privileged white male, Run does some incredible work with very privileged white males. I mean, he's incredible. His name is Dan. He is one of my like, closest friends in the world. He's one of the first people who ever called me Esther, right? I tell people I turned him like Twilight, right? It's like, because <laughs> when we met our first meeting, I called him a poverty pimp. And he didn't know what that was. And rather than to be offended, he leaned in and tried to learn.
1: Tell me what it is. What's a poverty pimp?
0: A poverty pimp is someone who comes in the community and makes money off of poor people without really providing anything of substance to help poor people come out of, stop being poor, come out of their situation. So it's like, I mean, like a pimp. Pimps who, who pimp uh, sex workers, right? And the sex worker does all the work, mm-hmm. gives the pimp the money. And, and the pimp gives the sex worker this fallacy of protection and care, but it's not really anything to help lift the sex worker out of their position. Right? right. The poverty pimp does the same thing, but it's in the context of people in poverty.
1: Got it. So you turned him around on that.
0: He did a lot of work. The key was he was open when we met. And I said this, it, it was enough to arrest him. Arrest him like, wait, because I think I'm a good person. I'm here to do good things. Why is she calling me this name? What's going on here? And in that, he was able to stop and hear in a new way.
1: You know what's interesting, Mel, is I, 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 I'm thinking about the, the, the line of uh, get with your cousins. You know, you and I come from the system of care world and all the money that was spent on cultural competence, training. and Nowhere in those trainings was the concept of get with your cousins. <laughs> <laughs> it was all that third leg of the stool. Let's just yes. let's just hang out over on that third leg.
0: Absolutely. S- Systems Care had a leadership institute, and when I went there, I went to leadership institute years and years ago, and I learned about um, technical versus adaptive leadership, uh, and. Phew, because it gave me language yeah. for something I knew that I knew about, right? I knew what I was doing. And what we keep doing is with, with the work, the systems that care did around cultural competence. What cultural competence does, it puts technical solutions to adaptive problems. Yeah. We put paper and pen solutions to add, to problems that are about thoughts, attitudes, and behaviors. And that's why we had such a hard time moving. It's not that we don't need both. We need both but we've got to do this, the adaptive work. You can't do the technical work in the absence of the adaptive work because it won't go anywhere. Mm -hmm. And we've spent tens of millions of dollars because no one will say, get your cousin. And I first said it about during, during the last wave of this, in fact, yeah. it was the last wave of, I don't know which, it was Philando Castile, whether it was Mike Brown, whether it was Eric Garner. I don't know which one it was because I'm out here every time. And I said, it was another thing where white people said, what can I do? I said, yeah. get that doggone cousin, <laughs> right? I'm tired of y'all. Go hey, get sure. your cousin. <laughs> because, because what it is for white people in this work, it is, it, you want to be with us. Because, you know, it's safe with us, right? Because we're of like mind and, Mm -hmm. you know, we get to be the good white people. Mm -hmm. And it's all that stuff that feeds that thing. The hard work on both of our sides is to get with our own people and have the conversations that need to be had. Like on your side is having the conversations with your cousins and saying that, you know, we should not have to legislate people's humanity. Mm -hmm. On my side is helping people understand that black on black crime is not a thing about proximity based crime based on systemic racism, redlining, concentrated poverty, underfunded schools and how to help people understand that what the behavior, what we call mental health, the antecedent action, Mm -hmm. the thing that precipitated the behavior and how we cannot get rid of the behavior till we meet the unmet need. You know, yeah. and at how and how to get away from this narrative that says that we are inherently violent right. when there is no evidence of such. Right. Yeah. And so there's these hard conversations that we both must have within our community so that we can come together with an with a shared understanding and come to this thing that you talk about, Alicia, least about shared truth.
1: Are you seeing any evidence of moving in that direction in, in your work in Rochester, or is that still a work in progress? I'm looking for, for you know examples of where you're authentically at that third leg of the stool as opposed to the shortcut method, which is what we've done for so many years.
0: Yes and no. Because it's always both and. It's never
1: either or. It's always both and. Yeah.
0: There are some incredible, incredible groups of white folks doing their own work on their leg. There's some incredible groups of Black folk, some of them I'm part of, who are doing work on our leg. And we do get to come together. Like when you see the rallies here, they feed people. So we've got folk from Food Not Bombs coming, bringing the food. We've got folk, from you know Court Watch, and we we have all these folk who come together, and they've done their own work, so they're not these white people who come together from other movements,
1: mm-hmm. right? Yeah,
0: from other like Food Not Bombs are the food stability people. These are the people who are working on food deserts and things like this. Right? They come and make sure that people get fed and have water at these marches, but they've done their own work. They've done their leg work. Yeah, And they're constantly doing the work. So they come and it's not this white savior thing. They're coming in as a co-conspirator to say, what can I do while you do this hard work? How can I support you back here, not centering myself, but be here truly in a support position to help you? We've got folk who come in as medics, right? I shout out to the medics, all the med- the movement medics out there, right? Mm-hmm. And a lot of them are white. And they come in, but they've done their own work. You know, there's some of, some of these people, like, a lot of them are, are socialist people and all these other people that usually don't see black people in their spaces, but they've done their own work. And they come in and they're like, no, we're in here with solidarity with you. And, you know, a, a white friend said to me, you know what the most important thing I can do for you while we're making this movie? Said, and I said, what? He said, go get coffee. Because mm-hmm. we're going to be up all night. And it was, it was profound because what he said was, it wasn't to bring my ideas and show you how we could do this better. Use my strategic plan, go get coffee.
1: Yeah.
0: Because we need, because we need the coffee. Somebody got to do it.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: So, I mean, that's, I mean, is, are we still growing here? Yes. Are we still facing deep challenges here? Absolutely. But I'm seeing glimmers because our work is multigenerational, right? You know, here, like the group that I'm part of, the Black Agenda Group, we did a declaration of racism as a public health crisis, right? And we, to date, we've got over—I think we're well over a 1000 uh, signets people signing on. We've got, I think, a couple hundred organizations and. Almost a thousand, about a thousand individuals, and a couple hundred organizations who have signed on. And part of signing on to the declaration says that these are these things you're going to do. Mm-hmm. Right. And so part of that is me going around and talking to our community about the social determinants of health. And showing how racism impacts all of these social determinants. You know, and helping people to understand why we're saying this. Mm-hmm. And now we're talking about what our demands are to say, what are we going to do to remediate this? How are we going to fix this? How are we going to address this? So that, I mean, that that meta, that macro level work is the work of people my age. Yes. yes, that's our work because we've been allowed, we because of our age and our movement professionally, we're in, we're at the table that get to move that policy and get, we we have those relationships at our age now. Mm-hmm. So this is how we spend our privilege. Because see, the thing is, people are not just oppressed or just privileged. We have p- parts, pieces of oppression and pieces of privilege and all types of things. It's easier for us to talk from our place of oppression than talk talk from our places of privilege, but we have it, right? right? So while I am a black woman, and many times people say, I am the oppressed among the oppressed, I also understand that I have places of privilege because of the work that I've done, because of my reputation. I get asked by different leaders, Melanie, I know you will tell the truth. I know you're a woman of high integrity. Please tell me the truth about this thing. And so I don't spend that lightly because I'm, I'm Esther, right? right? So that's a point of privilege. So how do I spend that privilege? Yeah. Something else that white people can do is figure out how you can spend your privilege. Because you may say, I'm not, I'm not rich. I'm not wealthy. I don't have this. I don't have that. But you may have something where you stand that you can spend. And it's not money. Spending privileges, most of the time, it's not money. It's about creating space. A new idea, a new conversation, space for a person to be centered in conversation.
1: What's next for Mama Mel, for Esther? Where is your journey taking you?
0: Well, right now, my journey is fully set in the healing work.
1: I've been focusing
0: the last several years around culturally responsive healing practices. Since the time that we've been really seeing each other real regular, I spent a lot of my time in Eliminating disparities, right? And I've come to the realization, I just woke up and said, what I've always known inherently is the reason that the disparities are so prevalent is that this system wasn't designed for us. Right. And so if we can keep shuffling the deck chairs around, but it's still the Titanic, right? It's still going to sink us. So we have got to find a way to do something that's radically different. So now what I'm working on is the radically different. And I'm doing things based upon what is an African worldview? What is the worldview of Black folks? So I said, let me go back and find out what the old way is. Mm. And in researching the old way, how do we build healing based upon the old way? And the thing is, we do, and these are a lot of things that Black folks just do, but because of the the Ma'afa, the transatlantic slave trade, and our journey here, we have these behaviors, we have these traditions that we don't know where they come from, but they're truly African that have been, that have been sewn onto our ancestral memory and we just do. So what I'm doing is trying to link these things together and bring them up so that we can see how they're healing and become very intentional about them. And it's something that's not clinical all the time. There's some people who've done some real great clinical work around this and I want to bring all these things together Mm -hmm. to do that work. Because what my theory is, is that if we put all these things together, that we will see real changes in outcomes Mm -hmm. for children, youth, and family. This work that I'm doing is completely community-based work. If you want to go on Facebook, there's a group called the Greater Rochester Black Agenda Group. Mm -hmm. So if you go to the Greater Rochester Black Agenda Group Facebook page, We do a live uh, Facebook broadcast every Tuesday night or like on most Tuesdays from six to eight. And you'll be able to see, like you'll see I talked about the emotional emancipation circles that we're doing. There's healing, which are traditional healing circles. You'll see information about those up there. You'll see all kinds of stuff on the page. And that is where I post a lot of this kind of work. All
1: right, last question. So if you could have a Zoom call with any woman the 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 person that you would most like to have a zoom call with and why so who would that be and why
0: anyone living or dead or, or just dead. anyone living
1: living or dead
0: My God, that's hard. Um, the person I would most, if I could have a Zoom call with somebody, it would be my mother. Because even though my, this is my adopted mom. my She passed away about 15 years ago. And I would want to have a Zoom call with her to, to ask her, how am I doing? She and i this is this is a long story, really short, but I was homeless. I had left out of the system and was living on the streets. And she found me. I walked into a church one day, and she said that God told her to be my mom and I was to be her child, and she took me into her home, oh my goodness wow. And she raised me as her own. And to the day she died, when she drew her last breath, I was at her left side, and my sister was at her right. And the one of the reasons that I go so hard is that this community of Rochester raised me and I'm paying back a debt. I would want to have a Zoom call with her to say, hey, Ma, how am I doing? Am I doing you proud? Yeah. I mean, because anything I need from like the Maya Angelou's and the Nina Simone's, I can get in a book. But I need my mama to tell me, baby. The ancestors are seeing you and you are doing well.
1: Ah, Beautiful. Beautiful. Melanie Funches, thank you so very much. Thank you. I appreciate this opportunity. You're a treasure. All right, my friend. This was really good. This was really, really strong. Melanie Funches. What a what a great interview. Oh my, my, my. Okay. Faithful listeners. What'd you think? Well, you heard it right along with me. That doesn't inspire you nothing Well, What a great episode. All right. Well, that brings us to the close of another amazing conversation with an incredible advocate. Check the show notes. You can find out more about Melanie, about what Melanie does. You can find a link to her Facebook group. that has that meeting that takes place every week. Yeah. Check it out. Great guest, and as always, incredible listeners. Listen, if you got a comment about the show, if you have a request, or someone you'd like to have me interview, let me know. Send me an audio file. It's real easy. Get your phone out, record an audio file, just like you're leaving a voice message, and then just send the audio file to info at theoptimisticadvocate.com. And that uh, email address is in the show notes. Just send that file. And uh, we'll take a look at it. And who knows, you may hear your voice on the podcast. Hey, now that's pretty special. All right, this is Scott signing off.